extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. In this podcast series, we are talking with educators we know are thoughtful and effective to hear how they are coping with the unprecedented closure of their school buildings and how they are planning for the future. Today, June 3rd, I am talking with Trisha McManus. Today's conversation will be a little bit different from our previous conversations because Ms. McManus is neither a principal nor a superintendent. She is the former Assistant Superintendent for Leadership Professional Development and School Transformation in Hillsborough Public Schools in Florida, which is a bit of a mouthful. And she just started a job as Deputy Superintendent for Winston-Salem Public Schools in North Carolina. I wanted to talk with her because she has enormous insights into how large districts operate, and I know she will be frank about the challenges posed by coronavirus, and also about the challenges schools faced before coronavirus. Hillsborough County, where she has spent her entire career until now, is the eighth largest district in the, count- in the country, with 217,000 students and 297 schools. It's a large, sprawling district that includes Tampa, as well as suburban and rural areas. Although it is one of the higher-performing urban districts in the country, it also has 50 of the lower-performing schools in Florida, and Tricia McManus was in charge of changing that. I spent some time in Tampa last year trying to understand the work Ms. McManus was doing to raise the achievement of Hillsborough's low-achieving schools, some of which had been low-performing for decades. One part of her work was to try to remove the obstacles to improvement that seem to be ever-present in most school districts. But the other part consisted of ensuring that the school leaders in those schools had the requisite knowledge and skills to do the job and that they were supported in the ways they needed to be. This is work she had been leading in Hillsborough for more than a decade. Anyone who has listened to previous episodes of Extraordinary Districts or Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times has heard school and district leaders who have enormous knowledge, skill, and belief in the capacity of every child to learn and achieve. But anyone who has hung around the field of education knows that that is not an accurate description of most school and district leaders. Ms. McManus has been part of trying to fix that. She has led Hillsborough County's efforts to build a pipeline of leadership from recruitment and training to hiring, placing, and supporting school principals. The pipeline was part of an initiative of the Wallace Foundation that provided five other districts in Hillsborough County with $6 million grants in 2010. Last fall, a RAND report said that the pipelines were responsible for small but significant improvements in test scores in five of those districts. This was a huge finding because this is a rather long-term project. The fact that it has already shown improvements in student learning is huge. With a grant from the Wallace Foundation, EdTrust began a podcast series to explain the pipeline and its effect in three of the districts. We had just about finished up the one on Hillsborough, which rather prominently featured Ms. McManus, when first we heard that Ms. McManus was leaving Hillsborough, and then almost immediately after the pandemic hit, which completely stopped our work. 
We're now looking to figure out how to release the episode on Hillsborough, and if you're able to listen to it, you'll see why I wanted to talk with Ms. McManus today. She pulls no punches and says what she thinks. So thank you so much, Ms. McManus, for being part of Extraordinary Times. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So um, I've begun every one of my interviews asking if the folks I'm talking with are safe and healthy. And until this week, I've always been thinking about coronavirus entirely. But today is Wednesday after a week of protests around the country about the murder of George Floyd. And there's another layer to that question. I know both Tampa and Winston-Salem, the two places you're now connected with, um, have had pretty large protests, uh, peaceful protests. how are you doing? So I'm I'm doing well. Um, as far as uh, the first part of that uh, with coronavirus, um, it was uh, that started I guess around in March, and so we closed schools right after I guess it was right after spring break, and so we were home after that. Um, but doing a lot of planning uh, for students to try to continue student learning uh, to try to address equity. Um, as far as access and uh, ensuring that every single student 100% were reached. Um, so that that is, you know, that's trying on kids and also the adults that were involved. Um, luckily, family, friends, colleagues have all been healthy during all of that. Um, so I think it's more probably of, of mental stress um, on everyone. Um, but I will tell you what I was most impressed with during the, the move to a virtual environment was the fact that teachers and leaders really rose to the challenge. They switched um, how they were instructing students. They called every student to make sure that either students had access to computers or access, you know, or if some students want didn't want to use computers and that they had access to learning uh, through learning packets. But I was very impressed and, and hopeful as I saw the way that our, our teachers and leaders responded. At that time, I was still in Hillsborough. And was in Hillsborough um, till this past Monday, June first, uh, where I'm in Winston um, now. And so now I'm in the conversations around how do we restart? How do we bring folks back instead of how do we move to a virtual space? Um, as far as the most recent events that are happening around the country, it it just tells it just con- confirms uh, the fact that education is so critical and that what we fight for every day to um, to really impact uh, the lives of students that have been marginalized for so long and to really change them. It just shows every day that why we need to do more and why change is not happening fast enough. And so many people are hurting and we need to rise to the challenge and as educators be very vocal about how to address what's happening. Um, and I really believe education's the only way to really get there. Well, this is a little off topic from what we usually do, but I just saw that the um, in Minneapolis, the teachers union uh, called for the end of the contract between the schools and the police department. So no more school resource officers, um, no more security at the, you know, athletic events and so on and so forth. And I believe the school board actually terminated the contract. Um, I thought that was really interesting that um, that 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 happened, and and I wonder if that will be a trend or if that's Minneapolis specific. I don't know. I do know that our conversation already in Winston, because um, security and and uh, safety is going to end up falling under me as deputy, is that we are our superintendent is very committed to stopping the school to prison pipeline, to stopping um, arrest of students, especially students of color, that happen 
uh, when, when situations are escalated really many times because of adults. And so um, I will tell you that we are focused more on how do we start, how do we have our own uh, site-based officers that are trained in equity, that are trained in cultural responsive um, uh cultural responsiveness in general um, that are trained in implicit bias and that can actually help de-escalate situations and build relationships with students rather than jumping to let's punish a student or let's let's react in a way that actually ends up escalating situations more. And that's what happens many times. I will tell you, I do know that that there are, you know, just like with teachers and with like every professional, that you're going to have different people with different beliefs. And so I do, I do believe that, you know, we also don't want to not focus on safety because at the same time, you know, you've got school shootings that happen that really kind of amped up the, the, um, the safety measures. But just because you have law enforcement, we've got to have law enforcement officers that are trained and that actually believe um, in the fact that we need to be responsive to students. We need to know who they are. We need to build relationships and we should not you know, criminalize what we're doing with students in our schools. And, and I just think education, again, I'm going to go back to, I think we need to educate, but then we need to hold people accountable. And I think as we start holding people accountable, things will start to shift. One of the things that I noticed about your superintendent, uh, Dr. Angela uh, Hairston, uh, she's been there one year. Uh-huh. And one of the things that she said very early on in her tenure was that she believed that principals were the linchpin that, and she believed that that was her job. uh, I I forget the exact wording, but essentially her job was to make sure every school had a principal who could lead improvement. Um, Is that a fair way of putting it? Absolutely. And a lot of the change. And and that's what you're going to be in charge of, right? And I'm so excited because I believe the same thing. And I will tell you like, so the principal sets the tone for the building. And I can tell you in the building I was in, kids were not going to be treated, they were not going to be treated unfairly. And it, I don't care, real honestly, what they did, we were going to, to re- show respect. And I do believe many of our kids, when they, not many, all, when they see the level of respect you give them, when they see that you actually care about them, you do not, we don't face the, some of the issues that we face when you back kids up against a wall. And so honestly, the leader sets the tone for this. And so having great principals in our buildings that actually have belief in all students um, that um, are going to build relationships with all students that are going to make sure all students have access and opportunity, equal access and equal opportunity. Um, And honestly, when kids aren't performing, that there will be a no excuse mentality. Like that's the role of the principal. That is the role of the building leader. So if we select people right, if we recruit the right people, select them right, um, and and really make sure we're developing them and supporting them on the job, we're going to, we won't have some of the problems we have. Again, the leader is going to dictate what happens in that building, and kids getting suspended, the the uh, disproportionality, all of that can be controlled by the leader and their beliefs and what they are willing to allow happen to happen in their building and what they're not willing to. So, in my opinion as a large school district, you can control for that. You can control for that, for how you recruit, hire, select, develop, evaluate, and then hold your principals accountable. So the fact that Dr. Harrison has made that a, a key in her or a, a core action in her superintendency or one of the first uh, priorities, I think is, is powerful. That's why you were hired. You were hired to do that. 
and now you have to deal with coronavirus. So like, <laughs> how are you matching those two things? So um, yeah, it's, it's so getting to know a system through a computer is not easy. I will say that. And it's frustrating, but I will tell you like, so we're, we're on meetings. And, and let's just back up one minute. You started two days ago in Winston-Salem, yes, right? Monday. Yeah. And, and you moved to a new apartment and you're sitting in the apartment talking to all your colleagues on the phone. <laughs> exactly. And they have been, they've been amazing. I mean, we, we're on back-to-back meetings. I mean, we have meetings for reopening of schools. We have meetings for, you know, right now, this afternoon, we have a meeting because we're shifting our model of principal supervision from a model that was built on levels. So an area, a, a principal supervisor would be just with elementary principals uh, or middle school or high school. Now it's going into an area model, which is what I was used to in Hillsborough. And so this afternoon, we'll be on a, a Zoom with all principals who, none of which I've met face-to-face yet. It's all been through Zoom. Um, I guess this is face to face, but you know what I mean. I'm not. I haven't been able to actually, you know, see them in person. Um, but that'll be this afternoon to explain the why behind this model. Uh, we're doing an area model, and that is, and that is part of that is to actually build um, relationships with whole communities and um, making sure that our area superintendents are in our communities, are knowing our communities, and um, and also just that we are able to synergize between feeder patterns of schools and really provide a, a comprehensive coaching model for our for our principals and uh, communities of practice. And so so every day, every pretty much every hour of every day, we've been on Zoom meetings. So the planning continues. I think what I'm missing the most though is the synergy you get from face-to-face meetings with chart paper all over the walls and markers all over the walls and brainstorming and and um, but we're making the best of it. How are schools in Winston-Salem thinking about opening? So our schools are, um, we are planning our reopening. We have a task force with many committees from technology, like how are we going to do a combination of virtual if needed, if if outbreaks uh, rise again and we need to do closures again, what is that going to look like? Um, returning to school and what do we need to do to uh, bridge the gap of, of learning that probably has widened even more um, with our school closures. And so, you know, planning, what is, what is face-to-face going to look like? How are we going to, to keep following CDC guidelines, but also ensuring that those gaps are closed? And so I know that I've been doing a lot of research around tutorials and some um, articles came out last week I, um, that were in, um, oh gosh, I can't remember now, but it was an online newsletter that I received that really talked about the power of one-to-one tutoring. And so how do we give our kids that need it the most one-on-one daily tutoring until we can really catch them up and close achievement gaps. And so like, I think we're thinking, we're thinking of all of these things. And so it takes a lot of people on calls every day, um, trying to figure this out. Principal voice is huge. Yesterday I was on a call around athletics and coming back um, with athletes. And when is that going to happen? And principals are right there on the calls, which I think is really powerful, helping to make the decisions about how are we going to return? How are we going to keep the players safe? What is, what is conditioning going to look like? And so there's just so many questions right now that are being addressed and again, we have district leaders and principals um, and our school board, I mean, really working together to figure out next steps. Our last conversation we had with a principal in New Orleans, and she said, well, they're talking about having us go back until the second wave and then going, you know, then leaving school. And she said, I don't see how that makes any sense. You know, how, how does that make any sense? And she's very concerned about keeping a teaching force if it's not safe. Um, and 
you know, and then she started saying that she would be wearing, you know, a full bubble suit and shield and gloves and, you know, um, but can we outfit all teachers like that? And is that going to help? I mean, I just find the logistics, I don't know how you're handling the logistics. They just see the logistical problems seem overwhelming to me. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think there's a lot of trying to get guidance and direction from other people. So like waiting for, you know, governors. And so each district, yes, each district's creating their own plans and, and meeting with experts. I know we've done some meetings with the um, the Baptist Hospital, the local Baptist Hospital, um, with some of their experts in helping us figure out. So, I mean, we've already talked about the importance of masks um, and, and, and people wearing masks to try to avoid um, any kind of spreading, you know, the, the social distancing and what classrooms would need to look like, you know, in that kind of model. But again, you're right that there's a human factor of people being fearful. And what does that, what does that return look like? So I think that, you know, we're working in concert with, you know, local government, national government, CDC. Um, we don't have uh, unions really here, but our school board um, and other just, we have a lot of medical uh, medical facilities here and just trying to really work across many people to make the decisions that are best for our kids. Because at the end of the day, that's what really this is about. It's like, what is best for our kids? And, you know, and really kids that have been underserved and in some cases are still being underserved. I'm not saying a blanket statement. How do we make sure that that their learning catches up because again, we can't, we still have to focus on literacy and not having and making sure that kids are literate and we're just, we're losing time. Um, and so that's, that's really what's on my mind as we move forward with our plans. So the one-on-one -on -one tutoring is really interesting. You're thinking maybe Zoomy or like, how are you thinking that? So for the summer, we, we are doing a jumpstart program and it is very small where a teacher is assigned to small numbers of students, but again, it's Zooming. So my thought is when we are able to come back face to face that we hire, because um, in, in what I've read in, in some of this research, it's not about it has to be a certified teacher to provide this one-on-one -on -one tutoring. It was more like there are places that are hiring lots of college students or other uh, volunteers, as long as they have a strong curriculum, as long as they know what to do with students, that it's really more about the one-on-one -on -one consistency, you know, for many days, like every day of the week, like that could actually really impact um, data and impact, impact results. And so that's how I'm thinking of for the summer, though, it will be virtual. It, we are not bringing student back for learning uh, this summer that is not virtual. So again, it's going to have to be ensuring that every student that really needs summer, because summer is really not about everyone, it's about who are the students that need it, and then making sure they, they have the tools. So a lot of this, honestly, is also the, the work of our student services teams and connecting with kids regularly, our social workers, our guidance counselors, um, people that don't have a classroom but are instructional coaches, connecting with kids one-on-one -on -one and making sure that they have what they need. I know when I was in Hillsboro before I left, you know, our goal, and it came clearly from the superintendent, was to reach 100% of students. And so when we got a list of kids that had not responded, either they had not come in and picked up a laptop or had not come in and picked up a learning packet, we created backpacks of packets and we took all the addresses and we went door to door knocking. I, I did that. My team did that. We knocked. When a parent came to the door, we said, hey, we miss you. Here's the number to the school. You know, please reach out. We care about your child. We want to make sure their learning continues. What can we do for you? And all that data was then taken back to the school team so that they could act on that data. But to me, when we're talking about equity, 
in COVID and non-COVID, it's really about whatever it takes. And we can't always follow. I mean, sometimes we got to, we got to really not sometimes all the time, think outside the box. Like it cannot just be, well, this is what the rule says, or this is what we can, we got to think, okay, then how do we, how do we still in a safe way, meet the needs of all students? And we have to go, it really, the message for me is whatever it takes. And so you need people that are willing to think outside the box with that. And that's what I'm, I'm seeing right now in Winston is some leaders that really want to make sure we're meeting the needs of all kids and, and do it outside the box, but also follow, following safety guidelines. Now you said, you told me um, we had a brief conversation before this, and you said that Hillsborough is really opening up much quicker um, than Winston-Salem. So what is, what's, what's the difference between those? Um, I think, honestly, a lot of it's driven by the state in general and by the, the governor um, as far as what's opening. Um, I know that in Hillsborough, like our restaurants were opening. They first opened, you know, with, at 25 percent and then 50 percent. Um, but I, what I was seeing there was much faster movement. And when I got here, we're still, to me, behind here. So I don't think it's the school system that doesn't want to move as fast. I do believe it really is dictated by more the local government and um, or the state government and how they're opening, like what their stages look like for opening. So I think that Winston's just behind it. I know there's been, from what I've been told, and, and I don't know specifically, but that there's been a spike in some cases here. So I think they're they're being extremely cautious in how they're opening back up. Hillsborough moved pretty fast. I mean, not Hillsborough, Florida, Florida in general. Yeah, Florida, and it's had a huge spike in cases. Yeah, so that, yeah exactly. So, so, so that's, that makes me very nervous, honestly. Yeah. Um, but maybe I'm just getting old and I'm nervous. I, don't know. <laughs> I think a lot of people are, I, yeah, it's, uh, never expected this would happen in my, uh, career, career in education or in general. No, no. And I have to say, I, I feel for Dr. Hairston. I mean, what a, what a heck of a year to, to, you know, start a new superintendent. I know. Is there, is there something good that can come out of this? Um, so I, I do think that it's just adding to the fact of, of the why behind the achievement gap. We saw right away when we started the technology, we saw the digital divide very clearly when we started, you know, distributing laptops and, and figuring out, you know, um, handing out food and all the, the needs. It just, it just basically reinforced for us the fact that we still have so many communities that um, have been underserved and still, and I think, I think this called that out, but I also think what this showed is, you know, when people put their minds to it, like even in the most trying times, um, we have the resources. We just have to actually allocate them in the right way. And we've got to accept nothing less than 100% of kids. Like if we keep that in our, in our mind and that's 100% of meeting the needs of 100% of kids and that's academically, but that's also, also socially and emotionally. Um, it, it just showed me that districts are, a, are capable of quickly responding and putting plans together that really can address the needs of all. Um, but I think the biggest thing is, is, and I think in both districts, what's been helpful. It's not just an initial addressing. It's a continued looking at attendance, a continued looking at who's engaged, who's not engaged. It's a continued, you know, if you really believe that, you know, our job is to make sure 100% of kids are learning, then you're going to be tracking that data. And the minute a kid falls off the radar, you're calling them, you're calling mom, you're calling grandma, you're calling whoever you need to and say, okay, let's, let's find out what's going on. And, um, 
And I, we have the resources to do that. We have the resources to make sure kids have the technology. We saw that when states immediately said, use your funds differently and put them toward technology. Like we have the resources. So I think one of the lessons learned is then why does it take things like this to go, okay, let's make sure that all kids have like one-to-one devices and kids learning how to use technology from an early age and having a device. If that was the case, when we had to leave schools, every kid would be like, well, here's my laptop. I'm taking it home. I'm used to using it. Like, so I think it's shown us that we definitely have to be more nimble between how we're using technology and how we're using your, your basic instruction that we've used for so many, you know, centuries. So, so, so it's going to kind of propel new thinking, you think? I think so. I think it's going to propel new thinking. I don't think education is going to look the same when we come back. Um, I'm not sure it ever will look the same. Um, but I think it's going to propel new thinking for sure. And like we were talking earlier about for some kids, um, uh, virtual learning may be working. Maybe there's going to be more offerings of virtual learning, more blended blended learning models that have not been used as much. I mean, right now, in many cases, you're either doing all virtual or maybe you take one virtual class because it's a requirement or you do all face, you know, or you're all face to face with that one virtual class. But maybe there is definitely place for a blended model or for uh, kids to be in the actual school setting at different times. And I, I just think there could be some creative, um, creative scheduling and creative processes that come out of this to really try to change how we've been educating students for so long that obviously with achievement gaps we have hasn't worked for every kid. So I think that, yeah, I think it could lead to some good new ways of thinking. Well, I, I certainly hope you're right. I'm going to introduce Tangie Reed Marshall right now. She's a longtime teacher and the director of practice at Ed Trust. And um, Tangie, what did you think? Did, uh, Ms. McManus used exactly the word you used a, a couple of uh, episodes ago when I said, how are schools going to open? And you said, they're going to be creative. That's what Ms. McManus just said. <laughs> they don't have a choice. They have to be creative. They don't have a choice. They, they, they don't have a choice. They have to be creative. You know, um, McKinsey and Company is a worldwide consultancy that does all kinds of work and all kinds of facets of, of the society. And they have found that when societies face crises, they have five R's that they go through, like five stages. Um, they have resolve, right? We're resolved. We're going to meet the challenge that faces us. Then they get into this mode of resilience. How, how will we? deal with this this crisis. Then they start thinking about how they will return to society. And then what are the reimaginations necessary and what might be some reform? We are at the precipice of possibility because we are thinking about returning and then the reimagination. Um, reform in education takes on a really nasty connotation because nasty things have happened. So I won't say that word, but we know what it means. We are thinking about returning and being imaginative. We cannot be what we were. Um, we cannot go back to a normal. And I wish that, you know, as a word person, I love words. I'm not liking normal so much, right? Because normal has not been normal has for, worked for it hasn't worked yeah. for a lot of people. Um, and so we have to dispel that. And I love what Miss McMahon has said. We have the resources. We have them. They've been there. 
the question and she raised it. Why did it take this? Right. Why did it take this to to loosen? Yeah. Right. To loosen. And, and, you know, you and I have had these conversations and I will contend and say it out loud. The reason why we are willing and places have been willing to unloose and loosen up is because students that we value and we must just say it, the ones we value more than others have been impacted. And because those students primarily white students, primarily students of wealthy means, they have been impacted to the same degree that the students of color, the students from families who are experiencing poverty, the the same degree of impact has been felt by the ones who have not felt it before. And so because that group is now experiencing challenge and disruption and inequity, now we're ready. Now we're ready, right? Right. It's what Dr. Bell calls the interest convergence, right? Like now the interests have converged because the group who benefits more, most is now not. Therefore, the needs of the groups who tend to be marginalized are now converging together. Now here's change. Well, I mean, there's another way of, there's a better, there's a, there's a Different. nice, well, there's a nicer sort of spin on that. And that is coalition oh, building, right? Ah. Coalition building. So <laughs> okay. all of a sudden you're able to build a coalition of interest around mm-hmm. an issue that until now has been experienced mostly by, by people with less political power. And right. so, and so, I, so yeah. to, and I mean, to the extent that and I agree, right? right. Like I, so I agree with that, but I, I don't want us to minimize the, the reality of where those fault lines lie. Absolutely. They, they lie in very clear, specific places. Um, and, and to, and, and yes, it's, it's a coalition. Absolutely. But to not be exact about the fault lines creates the space for them to remain fault lines. And, and the more that we are able to name them, the more we're able to dispel them. Um, and so, yes, we want coalitions. And, I, and I'm thankful for the interest convergence right now and am hoping and hopeful that they don't diverge. Well, that's the Again, big that's the big worry. That's because the big thing, That's right? the big worry, because what what I think mm-hmm. we've heard from a number of people, we didn't hear it from Ms. McManus, but um, maybe she could she could chime back in is the big worry about the budget cuts that are coming down mm-hmm. the pike. And if yeah. they come, if they're not, um, if they're not opposed by massive infusions of money from mm-hmm. the Congress, we will see, we will not see that coalition stay. No, we will not. We will not. It we is only not. possible right. uh, to keep that coalition together if um, everybody can has access mm-hmm. to, um, to being uh, served. Yep. And if they're not, we're, we're, we're in very big trouble, I think. Um, yep. So, well, this is, this is a little bit higher level than we normally get to. <laughs> but it's so much fun. <laughs> it's so much fun. Um, you, know, when, you know what, Karen, when yeah. it comes to the, the funding question is, I'm going to go back to, there is, there is money there. Again, it is really about it is how, there. It's, how it's directed. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, how it's directed and also how the strings are attached. And there are lots of people that like to attach strings to money that's needed for kids. Um, And so, but it's, but it's there. And so I'm hoping that uh, the federal government um, 
does not make major cuts when it comes to education knows that that we've taken, you know, we've, we've, we've gone probably a little bit backwards since, since we've been away from school and that if we make cuts, especially if there are cuts to some of our underperforming schools, that we are not going to, to be where we need to be. And so I'm, I'm just hoping, again, the money is there, the resources there, how do we allocate it and how do we like stop some of the strings that are always attached that prevent districts from doing some of the work that's needed to be done. So what strings are you specifically thinking about? What, what, would, what are barriers that you worry that will be attached? Well, so if, if I will just say this, so in some of our uh, schools that have been underperforming, we have additional staff, we have additional resources, we have additional dollars for tutorials, we have additional dollars for technology. Um, some of this comes from Title I, some from Title II, some from Title IV. If those funds are cut, where is the money that actually would pay for those additional resources. Again, that's what equity is about. The schools that need it the most are going to get the additional resources. If districts end up, I mean, districts have to be creative. I will tell you this, if money's cut, they need to figure out other ways to take your general dollar and reallocate that in different ways to serve under underperforming schools. Um, because again, these schools, most are falling in un, uh, historically underserved communities. And so Districts have to be committed. If that were to happen, how are they going to look at their bottom line and how are they going to repurpose dollars to make sure those cuts don't happen? But what I fear is, is that when those extra dollars that support schools like Title I, Title IV, that if those are cut, that those are funding some of the additional resources needed for schools to try to uh, improve. Yeah. Yeah. I, I worry about that as well. Um, so, <laughs> well, you gave us a lot of reason to hope and a l some more reason to worry. Um, thank you so much. Please stay safe and healthy. That wraps up this episode of the Education Trust podcast, Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. I hope you heard what I heard, which is a passionate, smart educator working hard to fix the problems of our public schools. If you think this is a valuable podcast, I hope you'll recommend it to your friends and networks. Please leave a review wherever you get this podcast. That will help steer people in our direction. If you want to be in touch, you can email districts at edtrust.org or tweet at edtrust or me at Karen Chenoweth or Tanji at remarsh76. Mike Patillo records and edits this podcast through the magic of Zoom from Tonal Park. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust who supports this podcast and thank you to the Wallace Foundation for providing financial support. Thanks and see you next time.